I'm going to take the next bit of time we have together to consider Joseph's story in the book of Genesis. We've spent the last number of weeks looking at Joseph's life. We've called this section of Genesis, God Meant Good, because we're borrowing from Joseph's words himself. He summarizes his own story through these chapters that despite tons of suffering, despite all evidence to the contrary, God was with Joseph and was working things for good, even though bad things were happening. Bad things were happening, difficult times were present, but God was still ultimately bringing about an end by which Joseph would be cared for and loved. We're not to see this as the absentee moments of God in the story of redemption, but rather He is he's active, He's working, He's bringing all things about for His glory and the good of those who are His own. That's, that's the point. That's what we're looking at in Genesis. So I'm going to start reading in the first verse, and I'm going to read down through the first eight verses, and I'm going to think of this as a kind of an introduction. And then after that, we're going to, so there'll be introductions, four parts in total. There'll be an introduction, and then we'll look at three different scenes or concepts related to how is God moving Joseph through this section. But let's look together. This is the first verse of Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows in the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. I'm going to pause right there. A couple of bits of background uh, are necessary, I think, as we consider this introduction about what's happening to get us all caught up to speed, and then we're going to look at the scenes related to Joseph. But before we do that, let's pause and let's pray. God, we're grateful for your closeness to us today, uh, the relationship that we have with you. You are so completely other. You're incomprehensible in your glory and your might and your power. And yet, you have called us your own. You've said that you have adopted us, that in Jesus we are your children and we can call you Father. And so we come joyfully this morning. We pray, Father in heaven. We ask that you would be lifted up this morning, that you would be exalted of all the things that we've already sung and already prayed and already thought concerning you, I pray that we could add to those the true and the lasting words of Scripture. God, I ask for any who, who have come here today for the, for the doubting among us. God, give us faith. For the, the proud among us, God, convict us and humble us. For the discouraged and sad among us, God, we pray that you bring comfort and then in all of these things, as we look at the Bible, Spirit of God, move in our midst. We're, we're reliant on that. We're not smart enough. We're not spiritual enough. We're not good enough to impress you or one another. So we're asking that your presence 
your kindness, your grace would lead us in these moments. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this first scene, the first eight verses or so, is an introduction, and it's about Pharaoh and about dreams. And then what we're going to see is the next few sections shift to Joseph, but only in a particular way, because of course, Pharaoh is in the backdrop of all of this at a time. Speaking of backdrop, here's the context of where we are. Verse 1 says, after two whole years. After two whole years. That reminds us that since the last words of chapter 40, in real time, two years have passed, and in that time, Joseph's plight remains. He is still in what he calls the pit. He believes, as far as he knows, that he has been completely and utterly forgotten. That's the last words of chapter 40. The cupbearer forgot him. The experience of Joseph is being forgotten. And this introduces for us, I think, one of the reasons that we love narrative in Scripture because we know, of course, that the narrator knows more than Joseph. And because the narrator knows more than Joseph, we know more than Joseph. And then Joseph, as being one who's in the covenant line, he knows more than Pharaoh and the people who are in Egypt. And what everyone knows and how the story is going to unfold is the thing that intrigues us. The questions that we might be asking could be similar to Joseph. What we're asking in a bigger picture, more than Joseph personally, is has God forgotten? Didn't he make promises? Didn't he say that through this line there was going to be kings and rulers and now the favored son who had these dreams that were of God is imprisoned in a pit? And I make the point of the first verse saying after two whole years because he's living an experience that is not quick. He can't just get over it. He lives it day by day. In reading the Bible, this is how long it takes to get from the end of chapter 40 to the beginning of chapter 41. If you don't watch closely, you're going to miss it. This is how long it takes. You see that? And the experience for us is just quick. And more than that, we know everything's going to be fine, so there's nothing in our soul that gets troubled or stirred up. And fine, not only in a here-in-this-moment sense, but fine in a galactic, cosmic, end-of-the-world sense, because Jesus comes and everything's fine. But the text makes the point after two whole years, because in Joseph time, it doesn't take just this long to look at the next thing that happens. It would be page and page and page and page and page. A groundhog's day of suffering of rehearsing all that has happened in the past. And the question, has God forgotten? Of course, we know that the story of Joseph is that God does not forget, and he's going to move. The way that he does move is surprising. It comes out of nowhere, though it involves a faithful old theme. And that faithful theme is the theme of dreams, Pharaoh dreams. I said last week, that this week was going to be about dreams in the same way as it was back then. And I want to acknowledge something right up front. I'm not going to take time this morning to discuss in fullness, well, what are we to make of dreams? Because if you're a thoughtful reader, if you're a person who's here and you're curious today, you might be asking questions that I have asked as I've studied really the whole of Genesis. Things like this. Does God still do this? Is he always talking through dreams? Should we pay more attention to our dreams? Should we just laugh at our dreams? How do we know when it's not God, but it's just something I ate? This is years apart. It's not like this is happening all the time. So what's the timing on it? Can we make this kind of thing happen? And there's something that I did that maybe would be of help to you. This last week, 
uh, I wrote out, as we've looked through it, this is not the first time, and I mentioned a number of instances. It starts with Abimelech, another pagan king, a ruler. And then Jacob, of course, gets dreams, and Joseph has ones early in life, and then cupbearers and bakers have them. And now Pharaoh's going to have it as well, and it shows up consistently in the rest of the Bible. So this last week, I wrote out, here's systematically what I think the Scripture has for us as it relates to dreams, just to try to understand, to try to figure out, well, what do we make of this? And then more than that, what does the Bible say about how to interpret these things, or what is God doing in them? And I wrote that out, and you're going to receive it in an email, as well as a highlight for a place on the website that has supplemental teaching for things that we do that are outside of this moment. I'm so glad you're here, but outside of this moment, we have a place that's got a whole bunch of good content, and we're going to send a document on dreams, and hopefully that'll help you. If you're the kind of person who says, I'm super curious and I want to know, can we do this? How does this function? Then that'll be there. And in case you want to listen instead, or to kind of go along with it, uh, Brian and I recorded an almost hour-long podcast on dreams last week, and it's on the Midtown podcast, and you could listen through uh, to that if you want as well. So I say all that because I'm not going to make much of the fact that Pharaoh dreamed, at least that specific mechanism for God talking, and you might say to yourself, well, that's what I care about, and if you do, hopefully that'll help you. So is that fair enough? Does that caveat, 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 that's going to sound foreign, caveat enough so that we can move forward? Great. I'm going to start then reading again in verse 9. What we have as a background is that Joseph's life is continuing on Groundhog's Day. Pharaoh now receives a dream much like everyone else, and no one can interpret it. Enter Joseph in the first scene, and I'm going to call this little scene basically from, say, verse 9 as we begin reading here down to verse 36, the idea that Joseph is inexplicably plucked from the pit. That's the word we're thinking about, plucked. And you're going to see that I'm going to use words that are very agrarian in nature first one is plucked. So let's read about him coming before Pharaoh. Verse 9, Genesis 41. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the chief baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who could interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. 
God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. I'm going to pause there. Out of nowhere, without Joseph's input, he is plucked from the pit. He's pulled out. It is almost comical at times how passive Joseph is in his own story. As far as he knows, he has done nothing to deserve an audience with Pharaoh. We do not get an explanation for the timing of this dream for the recipient of this dream, or for the fact we do not know. Remember we said when the cupbearer forgot him before, it was more of a moral forgetting, less than a mechanical one. We did not know, is the cupbearer going to bring him forward? He is completely and utterly dependent. And this is perhaps one of the lessons. Joseph's whole life, he is being routed. He is being pulled. I use the word plucked because they quickly bring him out of the pit. He waits and feels powerless for years on end. And then unexplainably, just as suddenly as he was sold into slavery, just as suddenly as he was cast down from Potiphar's house, he's brought back up from the pit. Now, a couple of lessons we can learn. I think that Joseph, one of the wonderful things about him is that he's commendable. I can actually say to you, hey, learn this from Joseph and try to be like him. Here's one wonderful thing about Joseph. When he gets an opportunity to be brought forward in front of Pharaoh, he remembers and understands who he is. He is humble in his attitude and his understanding of himself. This is what I mean. Joseph is brought up. He's cleaned up. He shaved himself. We're going to get to that. I think it has some significance later. He's changed. He comes in before Pharaoh. Now imagine this. You have been in a pit for years. You know that in your background you had this dream that said, I'm supposed to be a ruler. I don't know what's happening. I got betrayed by my brothers. You've had the disappointment. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, Scripture says. And you've had the disappointment of the cupbearer forgetting you. This is your moment. You're brought in front of not just the cupbearer, a confidant of the Pharaoh, but Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh looks at him square in the face and says, I heard that you can. I heard of you that you are able that when a dream comes, you could interpret it. And then Joseph emphatically, in fact, in Hebrew, it's one word. He like yells it. Not I. I heard that you can. Are you able? You have a gift? And Joseph humbly realizes something significant about all of us. 
Joseph essentially says in one particular word, yelling back in the moment that he has an opportunity, it wasn't me, not to me, I am helpless, any good thing in me is of God. What a statement. Joseph answers Pharaoh, it's not in me, but God. God will give you a favorable answer. This is a wonderful thing to imitate. It's a reminder to us that God, in orchestrating our story, he disperses and gives gifts. Joseph clearly has a gift. He's not being obnoxious. He's not being overly sort of swarmy and humble in a weird way. He is legitimately declaring a truth, and that is this, that God does give gifts, but it's not about you. It's not about me. We need to learn to say with Joseph, what an opportunity. He can impress Pharaoh who can pull him from the pit and keep him and give him a place, and yet his first instinct is to say, no, no, don't look at me. This isn't about me. The danger here is that Pharaoh's going to believe, oh, well then if you were just useful for a second, but it's God that's telling me, I'll throw you back in the pit after this. Joseph could have said something like, now listen, I do have a way to get there, but you're going to need me around because I'm very significant here. I want you to notice how unique I am about everyone around, but he does not care for that. He wants to get something straight with Pharaoh, and that is this, that when and if good comes through me, it's God, not me. Have you noticed the tendency that human beings have to take credit for things? Have you sensed in your own heart a desire to, be, to receive acclamation and affirmation? Do you just want people to know the good things you've done? It's this tendency, if it's let run its course through pride, that will be a poison to our souls. It's why the prophets and the psalmists so often cried out and wrote in songs even, not to us be the glory of God, not to us. Because here's the wonder of God's grace. Sometimes good things happen. Many of you are good at a lot of things. If you are in Christ, you've been given the Spirit of God that moves through you to be a blessing to His church. You've been given spiritual gifts. And here's the lesson that Joseph teaches us. Far before the Spirit ever falls at Pentecost, far before any spiritual gift comes, here's the lesson that Joseph knows. Are you good at something? It's not in you. It's in God. Do you have the gift of service and helps and administration? It's not you. Do you have a gift of hospitality and people feel welcomed and loved by you? It's not you. Are you a magnificent teacher? Not you. Generous in your giving and able to have business sense? Not you. Full of faith, not just in the faith that we have to come to Jesus, but Scripture describes almost as a spiritual gift, an ability to stand firm and full of hope. Not you. Miraculous gifts. You believe that God has given you moments of, of insight or interpretation or have you seen crazy healings and these kinds of things? Here's what God's people must say over and over and over again, not me. God sovereignly administers gifts, but he does not share the glory. That's the lesson of Joseph. And I say this so emphatically because what a temptation this must have been. He needed to care for himself and he thought... I'm sure, maybe God guarded him from this thought, and I'm just, what's that thing called when you put your own feelings and thoughts onto someone else's experience? You guys have the psychoanalysis word for that? Projection. That's the word. I'm just projecting on to Joseph the way that I would have been thinking about using this to make sure that I got ahead in life. 
but instead. I mean, imagine the moment Pharaoh says, hey, are you the guy? Can you do this for me? No. But God can. Wonderful lesson. And then, of course, he hears the details of the dream. Now, we're not going to deal with dreams specifically and how they function, but the details seem significant here. In this case, they're very straightforward. As you read through, like anyone who studies literature does, we have a habit of wanting to over, overanalyze things. And so you can read endless commentaries about, well, what do these things mean and how do they function? I think Joseph pretty well nails it. The cows are years, and the ears are years. But the thing that's interesting about this dream is that it was meant to disturb Pharaoh. God not only had to send a dream, but make it ominous in some way and to move the spirit of Pharaoh in some way so that he was exhausted by the options of the world that he knew. Do you see how the spirit of God works? Stirs your soul, makes you search everywhere for meaning, looking for hope and explanation and purpose in all the world around you until you are unsatisfied and realize there's no answers there. And these dreams, there's especially one part that it seems moved his soul the most. And I guess it makes sense. He, he views these cows and one set of cows eating the other. It's actually funny the way that he describes them. You can tell almost his joy in describing the first set of cows. He calls them attractive and plump. He said attractive. Now, I guess if you're a cattle farmer, this is a little known fact, but I had one of my best friends in ministry back in the day was a bivocational pastor who, had a, who did cattle farming, and my wife and I bought cattle. We owned cows at one point. We were, we were cow owners. And so I guess maybe if you're that kind of person, you would get that excited about it, but something Pharaoh knows, this is good, attractive cows. And then he's horrified. He says in detail, though, then there was these poor and very ugly and thin cows such as I had never seen. You can almost hear the disgust in his voice. And then more than that, what happens between them, he watches their death. Now, growing up next to Minnesota, you probably know that there's a lot of dairy farms and people just have cattle generally. In fact, on my drive to high school every single morning, I had to go through this little windy road and there was just a big pond and a bunch of cows feeding and going back and forth all the time. And I've seen and considered, and I, I guess I can understand the horror that Pharaoh has in watching them die or get eaten, because I've heard of and many times seen cows die in some very terrible ways. You want to know a few? So, one time in the spring, there's such an amazing overland flood from an historic and unexpected melting that occurs. Up to this point, I don't know if you knew this, but ponds and rivers and lakes completely freeze over. And farms and even cattle, they make their way across and they'll walk across frozen lakes to make paths shorter, that kind of thing. And in one particular instance, because of a quick freeze and overland flooding, these cows got caught in the midst of this pond. And then, of course, in the weeks and months that followed, it froze back over. And so you had the unwelcomed and horrifying experience of being a farmer and other cattle having to walk across and around the frozen, bloated carcasses of cows, just waiting for things to thaw. Now, if you saw that in a dream, your spirit would be troubled. But that's not it. I also heard a story, and I just read this last week. Did you know that apparently in Scandinavia at one point there was a lightning strike in the midst of a thunderstorm that killed nine cows in one strike? 
Farmer goes out after the storm, electrocuted cows. I so want to make a kill and cook joke out of this, but that's what happened with the cows. Recently, as in two weeks ago, my in-laws said that there were stories in rural Louisiana, my wife is from Louisiana, Cajun food all the time, told me that in rural Louisiana, the mosquitoes were so bad following hurricanes and storms that cattle farmers had lost cows because they had been smothered by mosquitoes and died. I mean, this is disturbing, right? Do you feel it yet, sort of in your gut? This is how Pharaoh's feeling. He wakes in the morning, and he says, I'm disturbed. So I've heard of a lot of ways for cows to die, and maybe Pharaoh had as well, but he thinks to himself, I've never heard of cannibalism. These ugly, thin cows, and they're eating one another. And then, secondary dream, these ears that are growing, and they eat one another. And there's something in Pharaoh's gut that says, this is wrong and I need an explanation. I'm stirred. And it's in that moment that Joseph can step forward and give him the interpretation. And we read it and it's pretty straightforward. There's going to be moments of plenty followed by moments of famine. And by moments, I mean seven full years. And then Joseph gives him I believe this is probably still part of the godly interpretation of the dream, but gives him some good advice as well. He says, you know, while things are good, why don't you put some stuff away? This is a good lesson for us as well. When things are good, why don't you put some stuff away so that when bad times come, you can make it through? And it is through this experience in this particular moment that Joseph is able to serve Pharaoh the essential God or king of the land at this particular moment. And in this time, it is the Spirit of God that has moved him to pluck him from the pit and give him an audience with the king. Let's read, starting in verse 37, to see what happens next, the next scene for Joseph's life. It says in verse 37, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? I'm going to read this statement again. Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. 
And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. I'm going to pause there and say that verses 37 through 49 create a second scene, and I'm going to say of this, if we're going to give a title to this, first one, agrarian word plucked, second one, positioned. I'm going to say planted as the third word, and it was tempting for me to use something like pruned, you know, for the second one, because I thought, isn't that much more planty? You know, like, uh, isn't that more green? And position may seem odd to you, but of course, it's a position that Joseph is given. He is plucked from the pit and then put in a different position, and when you think about it, the more I thought about it, it actually is not very out of bounds to use a word like position. Sometimes, I don't know if you know this, I'm, I'm no, I'm not a, um, I was going to say a tree hugger and then I was going to offend people. I, I don't mean that I'm not that. Here's what I mean. I don't grow things often. I grew up on a farm, but I never wanted to farm. But nonetheless, when we moved to Tallahassee, I'm going to defend my use of the word position. When we moved to Tallahassee, my wife and I moved in. We had a yard. We said to ourselves, if we're going to be Floridian, we need to be fully Floridian. Let's go buy a fruit tree. Because who does not want to walk out in the morning in the rays of sun and say, son, fetch me a fruit from our tree? You know what I mean? Like, who doesn't want that vision of life? So we got the yard. We went to the store. We pick an orange tree. We plant it in. And I will tell you, for many years, it was a pitiful little orange tree. Pitiful. Then, two years ago, we got about four oranges. We delighted in them. Last year, about nine oranges. This year, I must report to you that the fruitfulness of this particular tree is such that it is about to die under the weight of its own fruit. The branches have growing dozens and dozens of of oranges on them growing on and they're weighing it down to the point where it wants to fall over in the yard. So you know what I have to do? I have to reposition it constantly. I'm out there with bungee cords and ropes and like green wiry things made for this. I'm, I'm going up to branches and I'm saying, are you stupid? You're outgrowing your own strength. Look at this. You're going to kill yourself from your own fruit. And what I have to do is constantly for the health and the ongoing, the ongoing place of this tree in our yard, I have to constantly reposition it. And this is what happens with Joseph. We don't know the full story yet. Joseph doesn't know the story, but it's through this exchange and through the use of his gifts that he is positioned in Pharaoh's world, in the world of Egypt, in order that the line of his family and his extended family that he's been kicked out from will eventually be placed. Joseph is repositioned in Egypt. Now, positioned here also means that he's given a position, like a title, an actual role. He is essentially the prime minister. He is Pharaoh part two. His rule and his reign and the pomp and circumstance concerning this position that he's given is so much. Isn't it interesting that Pharaoh himself has to clarify what's not going to be his? He says to him now, okay, listen, I'm still going to be king. Like you're I want you to know, I'm still Pharaoh and you're not. Well, the only reason he has to clarify that is because everything else essentially is his. He goes through many of the circumstances and many of the ceremonies that would have been the kind of thing that a Pharaoh gets. Signet ring on his hands. 
people bowing out. Nothing happening except for his word. There's language in here in the Hebrew for bow the, bow the knee or people who come to him in, in submission that essentially it says in Hebrew that they would kiss his mouth. And I know that maybe that doesn't translate as well, which is why they didn't put it here. But the concept is essentially this, that everyone in the kingdom, when they come near to Joseph, what he says and what is his position, they would bow. And you know how people go to kiss a ring? Like they, they give like a kiss like that, a kiss of honor? That's the place that Joseph gets. He is removed after he is plucked from the pit. He is repositioned with new clothes and new power, a new name. There's some argument about what his name means. It probably is a kind of polytheistic idea of God is or he saw me or something like that. He's given a wife. And he is now in a place of great power. What what has Joseph done? Well, according to himself, he has done nothing. He has languished in prison, then inexplicably been plucked from that pit, used a gift of interpretation that was not his and was only God's, and now has been positioned with power. The story continues. Verse 50. This is Genesis 41, 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the lands of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. And what he says to do, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. The word I want to use for this last scene of Joseph's life in Egypt is the idea of being planted Because what happens here is that Joseph enacts his plan. He uses his power in order to solidify his place. And more than that, what happens is we get a planting of Joseph firmly in the line of God's direction and care and his covenant. And it comes about in a surprising way. You see, up to this point, Joseph has been faithful to say, no, no, my gifts are not mine. He has been careful to realize and to say, It is God who gives answers and God who interprets. But what we don't know is just how faithful he's remained to Yahweh. Careful Bible readers, as they go through this, they note that in many occasions, the way that Pharaoh speaks of God and the way often that Joseph even says the name God is kind of in a winsome way that really is more like Elohim. It could be taken generically if you wanted to. But what remains, especially for a careful reader, a person, in, a person of Israel's ancestry that would have been wanting to know is, but does Joseph remember the personal God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Does Joseph still remember the promises? Does he still believe that what he's doing, despite all the suffering, is in line with God's plan with his life? Which is why Genesis 41 tells us, in a powerful moment, 
that despite the fact that he's been shaved, and Scripture tells us that shaving of, of someone is a, is a way to press against their former Hebrew culture, he's been given new clothes. He's been given a signet. He's been given a new Egyptian name. He has a wife from a different place, the daughter of a priest, probably of a different religion. Not probably, of a different religion. And there comes a moment when Joseph is planted in his new place. He is everything except for the Pharaoh, essentially. And what does he do? He names his children godly names, Yahweh names, names that point back in worship, names that let us know, the reader know, that Joseph still sees himself, is in the line of God's covenant. He sees himself as being provided for and cared for by the promises and the presence of God. These names are not insignificant. Joseph says, God has made me forget my hardship. God has sustained me. God has cared for me. More than that, his second name, he recognizes not only that God has sustained him, but that God has given him good increase, good fruit. Joseph has not forgotten. He's been plucked from a pit, positioned with power, and then over the course of seven years, he's not let that power corrupt him. What is it said of power? The power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The question the reader would have had is, has Joseph compromised? Has he forgotten? Has he left the faith? And it's in the naming of the children that we get further and solid evidence that Joseph is still planted in God's line. There's a couple of big concepts, I think, to rejoice in as we read this story. What does Genesis 41 tell us about how God works, about how the world works? I want to go back to the phrase that I read twice in Genesis 41:38. Pharaoh says to his servants, after hearing Joseph's gift to interpret, after understanding the troubledness, the troubled nature of his heart and realizing no one else can help him, he makes this statement, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? The statement is, is spoken negatively in a rhetorical at the start. We can't find anyone like this. But where the Spirit of God is, there is wisdom and hope and life. This is the lesson, I think, of Genesis 41. Pharaoh has all the conceivable power in this known world. He has access to all the best musicians, the spiritists, the scholars, the best food, all that money can buy. And yet what Pharaoh realizes in this statement, this is a moment where God gives through common grace a statement of truth to Pharaoh more than he even realizes. Pharaoh essentially looks around at everything that he has and he says, why don't we have this? What is missing? What is wrong? The answer is they're missing the Spirit of God. This reminds us that as Christians and as a church, what we must cling to is to remember it is only and simply the Spirit of God. In so much as we speak God's words into the world, we have all wisdom. Insomuch as we desire to have a claim and to be sophisticated and to lean toward the wisdom of the world, we are fools. Sometimes it's that simple. If someone says to us, well, I get that you're spiritual and that's really nice and it's okay and I, I want to be a scholar too, especially of religious tradition, but why are you so serious about the Bible? We're so serious about the Bible because in the words of God alone is the life of God and wisdom for this world. If we have all of the knowledge of all of the halls of academia, if we've read every book of the Library of Congress, have you ever been to the Library of Congress in D.C.? One of the most magnificent places in the world, I think. 
wall to wall, floor to ceiling, books with ornate architecture. If we have all of the pages memorized of all of the books, if we are the best poet, the best fiction writer, if we have the best armies and the strongest generals in the battlefield, if we have the most spiritual people with the best mantras and the best yoga poses, if we have the best health and the best athletes, if we have the best business sense and the most money in our stock accounts, but we do not have the Spirit of God, we have nothing. We are lost. We are destitute. Pharaoh might as well be a child in the face of his need. Why can't we find a man like this? Why did all of this fail, he says, because they didn't have the Spirit of God. If you, in all of your inadequacy, in all of your sin, in all of your failing, in all that you don't know, if you have and because you have in you the Spirit of God through the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ, then no matter what is arrayed against you, you cannot fail. With God, you have everything. With God's Word, we have spoken all wisdom into the world. And without it, we are fools. Without it, we are lost. Without it, we are subject to famine and death. That's the story of Genesis 41. Pharaoh speaks more than he knows. And I'd say secondarily, another reason that we love Joseph's story so much is how many times his story weaves together with the story of Jesus. I read the end of verse 55. In this moment where Joseph is essentially given command of all of the resources of the world, and people are coming and they're crying out to Pharaoh because there is lack, and Pharaoh says to them, go to Joseph, and what he says to do, do it. And for those of us who live on the other side of Christ, who have received his ministry and rejoiced in him, we can't help but think of moments like maybe the wedding at Cana, beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry when all are coming and crying and the servants are going to the family and they're saying, we've run out of wine, we don't know what to do, and what does his mother say? Whatever your need is, go to Jesus, and whatever he says to do, do it. When Genesis 41 tells us that famine had spread over all of the land, and more than that, all of the earth, tells us all of the earth came to Joseph to buy grain. When they come to Pharaoh and they cry out and they say, we need bread, we're starving, we're going to die, they go to one who can offer and give them sustenance, can keep them alive and can give them bread. Those of us who live on the other side of Jesus, who understand in the light of Christ what God is up to, can't help but think of Jesus opening his arms and telling all who would listen, I am the bread of life. Unless you eat from me, you will die. And when you eat from me, you will always live. Joseph is put, not of his own doing, he's passive the whole way. Joseph is put in a position where he's almost like Christ would ultimately be. And so we read Joseph's story, and we commend him, and we're grateful for the ups and the downs, and we say, well, let's have hope like him. But more than that, what I want to say to you is let's read Joseph's story in the light of Jesus and realize that what God was doing, God meant good not only for Joseph and his family, but God ultimately meant good for us. This is our story. One day, all the earth, all of its resources, all of its rule, all of, it might, all of its might, all the governments of the world will be put under the care of a perfect and wise spirit of God. 
Jesus will reign and rule supremely, and if you have lack of bread, he will have bread in abundance. Are you thirsty? Are you needy? Are you troubled by the world? Have you looked around and are you sick yet of seeing no answers in your own wisdom or the wisdom of others? Then we look to the Spirit of God. That's the story of Genesis 41. We're going to see as these chapters continue how God uses this to bring his family to Egypt. But that'll have to wait for another time. Let's pray. God, I ask that our, our personal allegiance, our own understanding of ourselves and our place in the world would be tied to Jesus in such a way that we stop taking glory to ourselves. I pray also that we would see that even when we don't understand and that we need patience that you're working, I thank you, God, that in a world where there is so often confusion and failing and difficulty that you give solid and lasting words. Your spirit is life. And so I pray, I pray that we would learn when we're hungry and when we thirst, when we're confused, when our spirits are troubled, teach us, teach us to look to Jesus who can feed and sustain and give us peace. We pray in his name. Amen.